Our scripture lesson today comes from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which many of us know as the story of the prodigal son. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he had just got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to invite us to take some time to sit with this passage that we have just heard. If you're comfortable with it, close your eyes, feel your feet on the ground, and take a deep breath as we ask God to speak to us today with new wisdom through this ancient text. I want you to imagine that you are the younger child for a moment. You have received your inheritance from your parent and gone to Paris to read poetry and paint and live life fully and drink good wine and eat all of the cheese and baguettes. And then terror strikes. A famine hits Europe due to the strengthening effects of climate change. The euro's value plummets and inflation skyrockets and your modest inheritance is now worthless. You're hungry 
and without your familial safety net and without friends and without access to power. You find a butcher who is willing to let you take out the trash and wash down the cutting boards and knives and spray off the bloody floors for a measly wage. And you think to yourself, Mom has that beautiful property on the lake, and I know the U.S. isn't in this kind of crisis right now, but will the refugee boats even let me on board? You somehow find passage on a rickety old ship, and on the weeks-long journey back to North America, while you subsist on breadcrumbs and the random fish you can catch, your mind replays the horrors that you have seen in the past months as democracy has failed and the worst of humanity has been on full display. You finally make it back to that beautiful cabin on the hill outside of town, right next to the lake, and somehow she sees you coming. You look and smell terrible, but she runs to you and pulls you into her arms and shuffles you into the house to tend to your malnutrition and your bruised hips from sleeping on the floor and to give you a much-needed haircut. And then your brother walks in the door. He looks at you in disdain. You know that he's been caring for your mother and his eyes and the gray at his temple bear witness to the cost of the past years. You want to explain to him everything, to share with him all that you've been through. But quickly, he walks back out the door. Your mother follows and you can hear them arguing on the porch. Your heart aches while your stomach continues to rumble due to the richness of the food you're eating after so many months of hunger. The pain of your brother's obvious rejection fills you with confusion and fear. You are so tired and weary from all that you've been through, and you don't know when you'll have the energy to face whatever complaints your brother has. You sigh in grief. What does that pain feel like? Take a moment to really feel that in your body, where that hurt and confusion appears. Now open your eyes. Let's take a moment to turn to one another. Yes, please, engage with one another and share what came up for each of you as we walk through that story together. Take a second. Turn. Talk to each other. So as we come back, you can keep your eyes open now for this part. I want us to shift our attention to the older brother in this story. His sibling has gone off to a foreign land and taken their portion of the family inheritance while he has stayed behind to care for his aging mother. He hears of the financial collapse in Europe, the riots in the streets as famine and hunger take over, and knows that his sibling is in France, but he thinks, well, that's what they get for running off to fulfill their dreams. He comes in one day, after mowing the acres of lawn, to find you, sitting in the kitchen with an ice pack on your neck and a shawl around your shoulders, the look of hunger having withered away at your face. Your skeleton-like appearance shocks him. Your stench offends him. He is utterly uncomfortable looking at you and being in your presence. The conversation on the porch outside with your mother is about his discomfort, his nausea from your smell. His insistence that he cannot be around you while you make him feel like that. White siblings in this room, I would like to suggest that the older brother in the story is us. 
as we are confronted with the pain and suffering of our siblings of color. We, as we have been sheltered from the horrors of racism in our lakeside communities, focused on the proper mowing of the grass, our siblings are facing genocide from police brutality, malnutrition due to inequitable distribution of healthy foods, and lead poisoning from water systems that have intentionally been left to decay. We have a tendency to shake our heads in disgust when coming across these issues on Facebook or while driving down the freeway listening to NPR. But when asked to grapple with our own complicity in these structures of violence and oppression in our everyday lives, we crumble in discomfort. Anti-racist trainer Robin D'Angelo describes this phenomenon as white fragility. She says that, quote, White fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors, in turn, function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. End quote. Now, pause. Take a moment to notice what's happening in your body and your mind. Are you uncomfortable? I am too. My dear massage therapist Shannon, this is your shout out, (laughs) reminds me to breathe deeply when her fingers get to a tender knot in my shoulders that needs to be worked on. I know that it's for my own healing to do what she says, but my body tenses and resists the pressure of her hands. This work around becoming anti-racists requires the same kind of intentionality. And so, we breathe. We breathe into the discomfort and messiness of this human life, the messiness of learning and growing and listening. Some of you might be asking, why on earth is Candace preaching about this again today? Well, most of you probably have come to expect that when I I get the opportunity to be in this pulpit, I am going to bring a challenging word. But more than that, it's because this season of Lent that we are in is about coming to terms with our brokenness, both individual and systemic. I don't think it's a mistake that today's lectionary reading is the oft-quoted story of the prodigal son, but I do love that in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which we use here, it is entitled, The Parable of the Prodigal and His Brother. The framing of this story as being about not just the prodigal, but also about the response of his brother is vital for us today. So often we are prepared and ready to view ourselves as the prodigal, in need of the open, loving arms of the Father, who we often understand as God. But rarely do we think of ourselves as the elder brother, frustrated and resentful about what he sees as an unfair and unorderly return and restoration of his brother. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't many reasons for us to identify with the younger brother in this story. All of us know our own propensities for running away from love and getting the wind knocked out of us by life. 
And neither am I suggesting that this parable is a perfect one-to-one correlation for understanding white privilege and racism. Communities of color have not squandered their inheritances or lived dissolute lives any more than white folks have. But what I am suggesting is that there's a particular identification with the elder brother that I think is important for us to take away from today's text. You see, in this story, the older brother who has been sheltered from the effects of famine and hunger and disease by his father's fortune and privilege, centers his own discomfort, his own frustration, his own feelings, before regarding the state of his brother and working to engage in relationship. So often, when those of us who are white are confronted by the realities of what our neighbors are grappling with, not just in the streets of Ferguson, but in the boardroom and the classroom, we recoil and say, well, she's not going to make any allies using a tone like that, or I'm feeling attacked right now, or, well, what am I supposed to do about it? We need to listen. In a blog from last year, Robin D'Angelo shares, quote, in my workshops, I often ask people of color, How often have you given white people feedback on our unaware yet inevitable racism? How often has that gone well for you? Eye-rolling, head-shaking, and outright laughter follow, along with the consensus of rarely, if ever. She goes on to ask, what would it be like if you could simply give us feedback, have us graciously receive it, reflect, and work to change the behavior? Recently, a man of color sighed and said, it would be revolutionary. In a few weeks, our congregation is going to host one of my professors from Iliff School of Theology, Miguel de la Torre, for the annual James W. White Lecture Series. I won't lie to you, the message that Professor de la Torre is going to bring to us is going to be challenging. He writes and teaches with clarity, not mincing words about the ways in which white supremacy and colonialism have infected the church for centuries. But I want to encourage us to come with openness to the table, to receive Dr. De La Torre and his message with graciousness so that we can reflect on it and take action to change the things about this particular institution of First Congregational Church that continue to harm people of color in our community. Going back to the meditation on the two siblings that we started with, I want you to close your eyes again for a moment. Imagine that you are sitting back at that kitchen counter with your pain and hunger still very much present with you. You watch your brother come into the room and his eyes light up in recognition and then concern. He comes to you with gentleness and puts his arms around you and kisses your head. And then he asks, what happened? We've been so worried about you. What can I do for you? Feel that in your body. Where do you feel that acceptance and care? Breathe into that space. And again, Come back into this room here, and let's take a moment to share those reactions with the person next to you. Friends, when we center 
our own discomfort and our intolerance of racial tension over the real and present pain of our siblings of color, we are continuing to perpetuate the cycle of violence. I want you to know that this is not something that I have all figured out or am preaching to you from a place of superiority as an authority on all things social justice. No, it's not real. I am preaching this sermon just as much to myself because I regularly find myself coming to racially charged conversations with anxiety and fear and so many feelings. Feelings are not bad, but they can be used to control and manipulate situations so that productive action can't be taken. Another anti-racist writer and trainer, Ijoma Oluo, wrote recently in The Guardian about experiences of white fragility while discussing racial issues in the workplace. She says, quote, what might have been a discussion about the real quantifiable harm being done to people of color had been subsumed by a discussion about the feelings of white people, the expectations of white people, the needs of white people, end quote. We have opportunities to really confront injustice and take action on rooting out white supremacist culture from our own institutions and lives. But we have to build resilience to move past our feelings of discomfort, breathe deeply, and let our bodies and minds receive the corrective shift that is being offered. Just like you have to breathe into the pain of a chiropractic adjustment or a physical therapy appointment, or a counseling session. To do the hard work in the world, we have to breathe into the spaces that scare us. Because literal lives are at stake. We have the opportunity to choose a different way than the way of the older brother. To choose a way that embraces relationship. A way that tends to the needs of the other. A way that centers another's pain. Jesus tells this story to the crowds as the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about Jesus' propensity for welcoming sinners and eating with them. The Pharisees are more concerned about their structures of order and fairness and knowing exactly who's in and who is out. Jesus calls the people into the chaos and messiness of relationship, into the instability of toppling over the traditions and systems that had kept some people on the margins. Jesus calls us into the same kind of messiness. I'll leave you with one final metaphor in meditation today. You don't have to close your eyes unless you want to. Imagine you are in the kitchen preparing Thanksgiving dinner, and you hear your siblings scream outside. You rush out to them and see that in the holiday festivities with the kids, they've fallen off the trampoline. There's blood, and a lot of it. Coming from their elbows and knees, you are terrified and disgusted by blood. But your adrenaline is pumping and you go to them and tend to their wounds. Your concern and care for your kin helps you push through your own discomfort. May we go and do likewise. Amen.